On this episode of Emergence, we'll be talking to Drs. Tiziana Lembo and Divine Equem about FMD in Tanzania, and Dr. Jennifer Chatfield about One Health. In addition, we'll be telling you the winners of the World Rabies Day Awards. Welcome to Emergence, brought to you by MSD Animal Health and hosted by me, Alastair King. All views expressed to those of myself and my guests. This episode is published on One Health Day. We'll be talking to Dr. Jennifer Chatfield later about her experiences with One Health and we'll be announcing the winners of the World Rabies Day Awards. Before we do that, we're going to talk to Dr. Tiziana Lembo and Dr. Divine Equem. They're both based at the University of Glasgow, conducting research in Tanzania on FMD in a programme we've been involved with for a number of years. Tiziana Lembo is a veterinary scientist with extensive field and laboratory-based research expertise on applied infectious disease epidemiology, focusing on diseases affecting the health and livelihoods of marginalised communities in sub-Saharan Africa. Through 16 years of research in Tanzania, she's built up partnerships with Tanzanian stakeholders all the way from local communities to the key ministries. Divine Equem trained as a veterinary surgeon at the University of Nigeria and worked there in both government and private veterinary services for a number of years, undertaking field surveillance activities on a wide range of animal diseases. He later completed his PhD at the University of Glasgow, looking at livestock movement patterns and demonstrating how this information can be used to inform the control of highly impactful infectious disease problems such as foot and mouth disease. My discussion with Tiziana and Divine went on for over an hour. I've cut it down for this particular episode because we want to hear from Dr. Jennifer Chatfield. What I'm therefore going to do is publish the entire discussion in the next episode of Emergence. For now, let's hear some of the key points they had to discuss. Hello, Tiziana, Divine. Thank you very much for joining me. I really appreciate this opportunity to talk to you about FMD and what you're seeing in Tanzania. I really enjoy talking to people who are doing things on the ground and experiencing what's happening and understanding the local situations. I really appreciate you joining. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. I've been working with you, Tiziana, certainly for, I think it's now probably seven years. I've just been trying to work it out. Can you explain a little bit about your background, Tiziana, and how you got to working in foot and mouth disease? Yeah, so I'm a veterinary scientist and I developed an interest in international animal health quite a long time ago. I did a master's on this topic, so um, that was really well draw me to, to this type of topics. And I'm particularly interested in uh, infectious disease problems that affect uh, impoverished communities in sub-Saharan Africa, both in terms of their health, but also their livelihoods as a result of impacts on the health of their animals and their productivity. Thanks, Tiziana. And Divine, how about you? What brought you into the foot and mouth field? Yeah, I'm also a vet by training as well. And um, I did my veterinary education in Nigeria um, that was several years ago. And um, I think I really became quite interested in um, transboundary disease, you know, as a whole. And um, I remember we have this professor that also did his PhD in Glasgow. And then he was telling us about the movement of livestock and how that really drives disease across the West African nation. And I quite become very interested in it because when you see the, the nomadic movement, you know, from the Sahel nations, like the way 
Um, the trade is driving it. Big countries like Nigeria, for example, with massive population, is pulling a lot of livestock all the way from Mali, you know, Burkina Faso down to Nigeria, and that's spreading a lot of diseases. So that really becomes quite an interesting aspect for me. Interesting hearing different motivations that got, have got you both to to this place where you're working together on this. The overall project you're doing, and it's now has been going for quite a few years. Say, I think six or seven that I've been I've been engaged with it. You've got a number of objectives. You're trying to understand the connections between the different villages and how they use their resources. You're looking about how the herds actually then interact as well, using different things like GPS collaring, which I think is really interesting. You're trying to understand the trade associated movements. And that to me is a really essential area because it's people's livelihoods and we can't interfere with that, but we need to understand how it's moving the transmission of disease. And then from that, you're trying to improve surveillance and work out how to do your intervention strategies. But the first question to think about is what is the actual impact of have you seen of FMD, foot and mouth disease in Tanzania? What does it mean to the local communities? Overall, on the continent, we know that the losses are major. Uh, we have quite recent estimates that tell us that losses are uh, amounting to about $2.5 billion, which is huge. And, and the vast majority of the losses are in sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, but those are some kind of generic numbers that tell, tell you a little bit about what the impact is, but not really what happens at the household level. And that's really where we see the vast majority of the, of the losses. So these are communities that depend entirely on livestock for their livelihoods, about 70% of uh, households in, uh, in Tanzania, and that's consistent across sub-Saharan Africa, have livestock. And they are what we call li- livelihood-oriented uh, households, so they keep livestock for subsistence as opposed to commercial reasons. Livestock um, are used for all sorts of reasons. They produce food, uh, milk, meat, blood in some areas that is consumed fat is very important too. But they're also your current and saving account in a way, because if you need some cash to pay for your children's fees, you will sell a cow to get the money that you need to pay for those fees, or if you need to send your child to the hospital or a family member to the hospital, again, you have to find immediate cash to pay for transport and to pay for the hospital fees and so on. When we talk about transboundary diseases in general, a lot of the meetings we go to, it's it's about the big impacts and you, you quoted the numbers of, of loss when you look at a country level. And there's no question these diseases keep some countries trapped in in poverty, unable to get to the next step. But it is really important to remember that individual impact that you're just talking about. These animals are people's lives and a disease like foot and mouth on top of everything else is devastating, as you say. And when you're keeping your cow for potentially for that rainy day money that you might need and you lose it, that's key. That also has an impact on surveillance as well, doesn't it? Because some places I know, and I'd be interested, do you see this in Tanzania as well? People don't like reporting that they've got this disease because they're worried that someone's going to come and take their cows away or, you know, compulsory slaughter. Do you see that kind of impact happening? Yeah, well, uh, there isn't such a policy like likely in this in these areas, but there is definitely a perception that um, if your animal has 
or your hair that's foot and mouth disease, you might not be able to um, to access resource areas or or take the animal to to the market uh, because because you know people will not buy it, uh, if it's a if it's a sick animal. Uh, so it's not in some parts of Africa there are major restrictions when FMD is in an area everything stops so um, people lose livelihood completely. But uh, in Tanzania there is still less regulation of these processes, which is probably not an ideal situation either because uh, because then people keep moving their um, animals to to markets when they, when they shouldn't uh, but uh, um, but it, it definitely uh, affects them um, more on a daily basis and in terms of kind of generic policies that the government might impose on on, on people in terms of restrictions that leads us into this interview village connectivity that you've been looking at and how the, how they use the resources divine what have you been what have you learned in your in your interactions with them on how that connectivity between the villages is working in in normally in east africa you know um, livestock are actually been kept in in a traditional system and what that means is they share uh, you know communal resource areas and when they do that, there is always widespread mixing of livestock population. But this movement is really critical, right? Because it, livestock survival actually depends on them. But with this movement, then there's that risk of disease transmission. However, over the past four years, what we have done is to be able to understand this movement so that we can actually use it to explain how the disease is actually spreading, and which, of course, we inform our control strategy. So how do you see the, the trade movements impacting this spread of FMD? Livestock movement, especially to trade, right? You also drive FMD spread because the animals actually follow, you know, the, the virus actually follow the animal as they move. But what we've been able to understand that in, in East Africa, Tanzania, for example, and other East African nations, you know, the, the, the effect of trade is very unique. It's quite different. For example, look at local trade. These animals, as I've described just earlier, they are mixing every single day in these grazing areas, water point, up to 25 kilometers in the pastoral system. And what that means basically is, you know, within that radius, if you are trading with anyone within there, it's not going to make any difference because you've already mixed at those resource areas anyway. So the effect on trade, you know, in East Africa is likely to be more on the regional side of things. That means one district, you know, transmitting disease to another district. That means you trade your livestock within, say, for example, we were working in the Maya region, which is the region that is close to the border between northern Tanzania and southern Kenya. And what we want to understand is a kind of pattern in that movement. There's a directionality to it. So what we realize is that livestock actually originate from the rural areas and then they get traded in the rural markets and then they move to the urban area. So there is that directionality of rural to urban movement through the trade network now. And what we now realize is that if that's the case, then most probably those villages are actually the source of an infection, for example, FMD. And then the destination where they are moving in the urban areas are now becoming the sinks of infection. And what you're talking about, really highlighting the impact of people in how this disease spreads. That is so, so much what drives it and how it's moving around. When I first learned about this project, a big part of why I got excited, why I was interested, was because you, you Tiziana, you were talking about the community and you wanted to get to that local level to understand what was happening at that community level. How important have you found it to engage the community over the years? Have you found that engaging at a local level has made a difference? 
Yeah, so there are so many reasons why it's so critical to engage with the communities in the, for the type of research that we do, but also if we want that the research that we do has an impact on the livelihoods of these people. One key reason is that uh, we really need the knowledge that these people have. Uh, they have a very in-depth understanding of the animals, of the diseases that they have, of their environment, uh, in terms of what areas might pose risks. Um, of any type. So they, they know their animals individually. They don't need any sophisticated system to identify their animals. They can tell you which animal is which. They, they can tell you how a healthy animal looks or how a diseased animal uh, looks. What I find very interesting is that when they talk about health uh, and what they consider the um, aspects of health, uh, in their animal that uh, they want to see. They talk about almost like a social dimension. <laughs> they, they talk about the ability of the animal to to eat and drink and, and be part of the herd as opposed to isolating itself. Uh, they talk about uh, the ability that they have to produce and reproduce and work uh, in terms of, for example, providing draft uh, capacity, uh, but they also recognize very clearly biomedical dimension of health, so they can recognize what typical clinical signs uh, indicate a certain disease problem. And so we're talking about diseases that, are, that, that don't make it into official records. So if we don't um, uh, rely on the communities to, to detect those cases, then we have no cases, basically. So we completely rely on, uh, on their understanding of their animals and, uh, and uh, on the disease incidences that they see in their area so that we can actually quantify quantify um, their impacts. But we uh, we also need this information to be able to interpret and contextualize our, our results and also determine what constraints people might have and so what um, recommendations that we might want to provide uh, they might be able to, to implement. So that's that's a key reason. With that work that you've been doing and your engagement at that local level, seeing how those nodes are, the disease traveling, in what kind of ways has this brought to you novel ways or novel ideas of how we could approach foot and mouth disease? Um, when you talk about foot and mouth disease control, you know, there are two things that really needs to happen at the same time. And that is restriction of movement and having an effective vaccine. Now, that's the best case scenario, right? But that's not, a, you know, available to, to these local communities we are working in in East Africa. And that's why our study over the years have now started thinking about ways where we can actually incorporate these challenges, you know, in providing solutions and recommendations towards the control of FMD. So, for example, what our network models have been able to show is that, you know, in the web I described earlier on how these villages are mixing, on how the trade network is all connected, there are actually few locations that control the majority of the movement. So if that's what is really happening, that means if we should focus on intervention, for example, on those key areas that are influencing the movement, then we can actually reduce transmission and impact, but with very little, very little cost. For instance, there are studies that have been able to you know, demonstrate that when you target 20% of highly connected nodes in a network, you can actually reduce overall connectivity or a size of an epidemic by up to 80%. So we actually demonstrated that in our own data. But what our movement data have now been able to do is to actually inform the timing of an intervention. So if, for example, you are going to, you are going to predict that 
The next serotype that will cause an outbreak in an agropastoral community, for example, is going to be O, and then you have a good vaccine that will be able to prevent the outbreak, for example, then the timing is also important. Because when we simulate the disease in those communities in the pastoral and the agro-pastoral, we realize that in the agro-pastoral, there is actually high cases happening in the dry season compared to the wet. So that means a targeted control option should be able to, to be timed in such a way that just before the dry season in the agro-pastoral community, that's where a proactive vaccination campaign should be done. Why in the agro-pastoral community is exactly the opposite. You should be thinking about doing a proactive vaccination just at the beginning of the raining season to make sure they are being protected, especially if you can also predict the serotype that is likely to cause an outbreak. So combining those two you know, information could really be a step forward in controlling FMD in this area. I think the last thing to just ask, because I know we're running out of time, what do you see with what you've learned? What do you see as the major hurdles to, that still remain to FMD control? Uh, I, I would think that one of the major constraints still is uh, is uh, mechanisms to get vaccines into into the countries that need them, and also from the country level into the communities that are mostly affected, and and that's still a, a bit of an issue in some of these areas. It's very exciting that there are now initiatives in place, like the AgResults initiative, that are really tailored to uh, to lead to the de- development of good vaccines, but also uh, facilitate the registration of these vaccines at the local level and improve uptake. So that's 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 a very good initiative. It'll take time. Um, so at, at this at this level, we are still working towards getting those good vaccines into the communities. Divine, are there on your side any additional hurdles to to FMD control that you're seeing? Well, yeah, I think something as which um, I realize, you know, dealing with these communities in uh, you know at that very local level is that they've they've kind of find a way to live with FMD right over the years. So they've accepted that there's always going to be these laws and there's nothing that can be done about it. So I think like, you know, for example, like what Tiziana was saying about, you know, they're contributing towards the control of the disease by maybe being able to pay some certain amount towards the vaccine if an effective one is available. But the truth is, most of the time, they are not even interested in buying anything. To them, they believe that animals are just free to roam, you know, they graze freely, then whatever we get from them is the additional benefit. So I think that value orientation, just to try to let them know that there is, in as much as you know, you recognize there is an impact of FMD on your head, but you could actually save more if you could invest this little towards a vaccine. So getting that education across is is something we really need to do. Education definitely one of the keys to keeping on keeping on improving where we are. Thank you both very much. We've overrun our time. I've just really enjoyed talking to you about all of this. Really appreciate the time that you've given to me. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for organizing. Yeah, thanks very much. We've been really pleased to be able to be involved in that project in Tanzania for a number of years. I think it's fascinating and I love the engagement with the communities. Now we'll go to a chat I had with Dr. Jennifer Chatfield. Jennifer co-hosts the podcast Vet Candy, as well as hosting Is This a Thing, a podcast that helps animal owners understand more of their animals' health. She's got an incredible resume. She's worked as a 
zoo veterinarian. She's worked as an emergency clinician. She's owned her own practices. She's worked in research where she's published papers on diseases and conditions in gorillas and lemurs, amongst other things. She's completed fieldwork in Madagascar and South America. She's an instructor for FEMA agroterrorism courses. She's been involved with the Department of Health as well and had roles with them. Really, her life has focused on One Health. And that makes her a fantastic guest for me to talk to on One Health Day. So it's great to be able to have you here. Thank you very much, Jennifer. Oh, no, thank you for having me. I'm super excited to talk with you and your listeners. For you, why is One Health so important as an approach when we look at trying to control these diseases? Oh, Wow, what a what a what a complex question to start off with. Okay, so yeah, so One Health. So um, the reason I think that One Health is um, an important approach to take is I'm not sure that I am able to take any other type of approach because of my background. I uh, and I think One Health is. You know, a lot of folks um, may be hearing it for the first time when they l- start listening to your podcast series, uh, but but it's really not new. It's not even um, as as new as the One Health Initiative um, that was launched here, gosh, I mean, 15, 10 or 15 years ago in the United States, at least. One Health is really kind of what used to be the approach that I think our a lot of our ancestors had to longer living uh, because people at that point were so close to animals. And these days, especially in Western um, society, we've become so far removed from them. And I don't mean like your dogs and cats. Um, (laughs) I mean, um, animals that we depend on for survival. And so um, approaching any sort of issue uh, whether it's an environmental issue, whether it's a issue of infectious disease, uh, which is what I prefer um, to talk about, from a One Health approach really gives you the best opportunity to effectively address the issue for the benefit of all involved, right? So because if you forget one of the three legs, you know, you got the three legs, which which one is always forgotten, right? We, we always talk about, we talk about human health, right? Animal health, and we always forget environmental. You know the third leg of that stool, and so, uh, I and and if you forget one leg of the stool when you're addressing the problem, well, you better pack a lunch because you'll be addressing it again. <laughs> in my experience, so so that's why it's. I guess I guess in the in uh, in a nutshell, um, it's important to me to have that approach when addressing issues of transboundary diseases and emerging pathogens, so that I, I'm efficient and I only have to maybe do it one time. <laughs> I like that idea that historically One Health was what we did anyway, and it was you people had to think much more about things. And you're right; it's that disconnect that Mm -hmm. has now occurred with modern society with what's going on. So we don't see that, and understanding that you have to think about the impacts. There are so many examples, so many examples where, Mm -hmm. as humans, we've interfered because we've seen one problem a single problem and we want to fix that and therefore that's the solution and of course that solution has then led to a heap of other uh, other problems now whether that's the introduction of exotic species into an area that actually causes more damage to the environment than what you were trying to control or yep. new diseases coming and things like that mm-hmm. and that change that we we get and and now the now the impact on environment where we're seeing vectors we're seeing the mosquitoes and the midges and things able to live in areas where they couldn't live before or ticks Mm -hmm. moving 
and disease now appearing where we haven't seen it before is a really important one for us to be aware of as we try to control that. Oh, a hundred percent. And that's so. Uh, when, when I lecture about emerging infectious diseases, everyone's with me pretty pretty much in agreement there, and they're pretty calm. You know, yeah, yeah, we're familiar with the fact that if people travel, they might bring different pathogens in that you know that didn't exist in that town, state, or country. Yeah, we're okay with that. And then I throw up a slide and it says, but what about us? And it's got a mosquito flying on one side. It's got a, a tick on the other one. And, um, you know, we're finding that in the United States, right? We have that new um, Haemophysalis um, longicornis, right? The longhorn tick yeah. has appeared um, here. And, um, you know, they had, um, <clears throat> was it, um, the Crimean Congo hemorrhagic fever that showed up in um, the UK, right? Like, oops, here's a tick on a horse that doesn't have a passport <laughs> and has never yeah. traveled. Um, so, uh, when you introduce the, the possibility of vector borne disease, I mean, it can just be overwhelming, overwhelming. We're seeing that with lumpy skin disease in Castle at the moment. It mm. came a disease that was just Africa. Suddenly, the vectors and human movement had brought it into Europe and then yep. it spread and now it's moved over into Asia. And suddenly everyone's, oh gosh, now we've got a disease that's actually spreading around the world and we need to worry about it. Just can't rest on the fact that whether the vector doesn't exist where you are currently or if you say the disease doesn't exist here, well, you still have to be looking for it because um, it can show up. <laughs> moving, moving on slightly, how did you get so passionate about infectious and emerging diseases? Oh, gosh. I, get, I don't guess I've ever thought about that because I've always, I've always found them intriguing. I guess, number one, uh, what's interesting about them or what interested me initially was, uh, you know, they can kill you. Um, so <laughs> yep. I guess <laughs> it might have been my interest in continued existence. <laughs> initially to know, but also just because my background, so I grew up on a farm and uh, One Health and uh, understanding uh, or at least acknowledgement of infectious diseases is like Tuesday afternoon. Um, you know, it's like a, a way of life uh, and and understanding that humans and animals both have the capacity to transmit those diseases also is something that I think you grow up knowing if you live on a farm. Uh, because biosecurity sounds very fancy, very sensational, super glamorous, um, but it's also just called, you know, safeguarding your farm. <laughs> yeah, um, it doesn't have to be so um, so fancy as uh, biosecurity. And so, but re realizing that and the insidious nature of infectious disease, you so a bomb goes off, right? And you don't really have to tell people that that there was an explosion. They they know. They heard it. <laughs> they felt it. And you know right then, that's when it happened, and you immediately know it. But when you have an emerging pathogen, you 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 don't know, right? It's an insidious thing. And it's like a sneak attack. The pathogen's just looking to to survive, right? It's just being driven by an innate survival. And it may have been introduced into the animal or the person or the population or the geographical location weeks ago before it's ever discovered. Um, and 
I just find that fascinating. I mean, look at look at what we're we're dealing with now, right? Anytime there's a global outbreak of of anything, whether it's African swine fever, whether it's um, oh Nipah virus, another one of my favorite pathogens. Um, uh, if if you've ever heard me talk about infectious disease, I always find a way to bring up Nipah and influenza. Um, but when those things immediately we we go we you know we trace back and we trace forward, right? The epidemiological investigation, and for me finding that trace back, like, where did it start? How did it happen? Um, What did we miss? And I don't mean miss as in like a fault finding thing. uh, Because if you're not looking for it, you won't find it. That's a fact. Um, But it's just I just find it fascinating. Um, It's like a mystery, like a like a mystery novel. Um, Yeah, so spoiler alert, I watch a lot of crime drama on (laughs) TV. So, but you you have the same thing. So, what what is it about um, transboundary diseases and emerging pathogens that drives your interest? Yeah, oh, thanks, thanks for turning that back on me. I yeah. wasn't expecting that. <laughs> there are a number of things from a scientific point of view. I think they are some of the more more fascinating diseases that you look mm-hmm. at. Things like foot and mouth disease and influenza, especially the way that they shift and they alter and they're constantly moving and we're trying to keep up with them. Yep. I just find, yeah, matching your, your wits against these tiny little things that don't have brains and yet can, can do, <laughs> do so much more, I find absolutely fascinating. And I, yeah. lo- I love that science bit. I mm-hmm. think that's great. I think also for me, it's because I see that impact you know, I'm a veterinary surgeon by training, and I mm-hmm. spent a, spent a number of years in practice, and I really enjoyed being in practice. And my daughter is hopefully going to become a vet, and I'm re- really proud of that. Yeah. But now doing this, I'm yes, I'm helping animal lives, but I'm helping human lives and helping the environment if I get this right. Mm-hmm. That's that's a really big thing. What you were talking about there is it's important because we're talking about farming and mm-hmm. that interface between wildlife farming and people where we see that going on how do you see with your experience how do you see that driving some of these emerging uh, and transboundary diseases Ooh, good question so i think it's very different right because our global community is very diverse and not only in their ecosystems but also in the cultures of the people so <clears throat> if we're talking about uh, transboundary emerging diseases, and we're talking about the interface um, between wildlife and humans, and then you throw in, in between those two domestic animals, um, then you really have almost, you've created a four-legged chair, right? Because you've, th- you've diversified the animal health from free-ranging or native species, and you've split that with the domestic ones. And of course, domestic animals in a, that tend to, I would say in almost every culture, they've, they've got significantly more con- direct contact with humans than wildlife. And so you have to look at each one of those locations, each one of those societal situations individually. And then you can determine where the risks are, where they can be mitigated, and where you have to be more vigilant in your surveillance to immediately detect the emergence of a pathogen. What do you see as the hurdles to trying to control transboundary and emerging diseases? Oh, yeah. Humans. (laughs) 
it's it's humans. So it's humans from multiple different perspectives. But but I'll say, let me say something positive, which is that the solution that I see is also humans. <laughs> good. That, okay. Yeah. Good. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, so uh, it, our global community has become so connected. Uh, yeah, I mean, you can be anywhere in the globe in less than 24 hours. Um, and so can a pathogen, right? We saw that with the original SARS. Um, and so because people travel essentially unfettered um, and a lot of pathogens are evolving for asymptomatic transmission, um, I, I see humans as part of the obstacle because we're, we're not going to go back. We're not going to go back to a situation where, you know, you have to stay on Ellis Island for 30 days before you can enter the U.S. We're not, we're not going to go back to those sorts of situations. We're just not. And I'm okay with that. <laughs> Um, we're not going to uh, have examine, uh, exams by a physician before you get on an airplane um, to go to a different country. We're, not, we're just not going to do that. But people have to become more aware. And I don't mean aware of diseases as a, a potential threat. I think people are pretty aware of that now. But I think people have to just become more aware of their own safety and health. We've got to educate um, the public at large about how pathogens might be transmitted you you would be i'm always surprised by people who are shocked at the uh, efficacy of just washing your hands it may be a respiratory virus uh because they looked at that in a in a hospital situation and it's peer-reviewed so you know the data must be real right uh but they looked at that and they cut the transmission of respiratory viruses by some incredible number i'm going to make this up right like it was it was it was significant it was like 60 percent, right a yeah. reduction just by people washing their hands a couple more times a day. Um, so you don't think about that. So I, I think um, the solution is human-based, but I also think that the problem is, is human-based um, as well. So it's interesting. And, and I just read a paper that came out when they talked about um, the original SARS uh, pandemic versus this like SARS 2.0 with the, the coronavirus 2. And they said, you know, they identified what they thought to be the likely intermediate host, right? The masked palm civet. And they went into areas and apparently just just depopulated civets. Hmm. And that's not necessarily a, an effective approach. I, I think engaging people in, so that they understand that risk and are willing to engage in mitigation efforts on their own is going to be the real solution. But that may be a little pie in the sky. What do you think? The, the thing about getting rid of animals in certain areas because you're scared of a disease, and um, we see that with rabies. People think, oh, there's rabies, we're going to cull all the dogs. Actually, all that does is it brings more disease in because it changes the dynamics and we're back to right. one health. So understand what we're doing and what impact we have on the environment and everything else before we start acting. And But that's also why uh, b both... Um, so. Uh, just so that your listeners know. So I have a twin brother who's also a veterinarian and also works with zoo animals. Um, and both of us uh, have a real passion for um, the importance of educating kids, okay? Because you got to start them young and raise them right, but also educating their parents <laughs> um, and, and adults in general, just because you, you can't know what you don't know. And a lot of times the fear, that the antidote to any fear is information yeah. um, and education. And so, but that's also one of the most difficult things, right? Is to teach humans <laughs> something new. Um, but we keep, we keep striving for it. I'm a great fan of educating children because I think children educate their parents. They do. If, if I can convince 
child and get them to understand something, they can explain it to their parents. And we've seen that in in different things. I, I have a daughter. I know how effective children are at changing behavior. Oh my gosh, right? Just just by their mere appearance in your life, right? <laughs> it's changed irrevocably. <laughs> yes, 100%. Thank you very much, Jennifer. It's been great chatting to you. Really enjoyed it. Just always fun meeting people who enjoy the areas I enjoy with and just talking through some of those things. So thank you very much for your time. Oh, thank you for having me. And I hope I hope uh, the listeners um, enjoyed it as well. And um, I, I, I always look forward to the next episode of your podcast. So, uh, so I'll do that. Thank you very much. We're proud to be involved with the World Rabies Day Awards from when we set them up five years ago, working with the Global Alliance for Rabies Control. The idea behind the awards is we recognize people around the world working in incredibly difficult situations with very little resources, but doing amazing things to try and control rabies, improving both human and animal lives. And the winners are always announced on One Health Day, which is today. So I have the great pleasure of being able to tell you who has won. The global individual winners are Miss Mamuna Arshad from Pakistan and Mrs. Rachel Wright from India. The global student group is the Special Animals and Veterinary Emergency Relief Society from Pakistan. For the regional winners, from Sub-Saharan Africa is Animal Mama from Cambodia. And from Asia is Liberia Animal Welfare and Conservation Society from Liberia. And then the Middle East and Central Asia is Le Sanctuaire de la Faune de Tangier from Morocco. Congratulations to all of them. And you'll be able to find more details about those winners, both on the Global Alliance for Rabies Control site and also on our Emergence website. Thank you everyone who submitted people as nominations for recognising all the amazing work these people do. Thank you all for listening. The next episode will cover the interview with Dr. Tiziana and Dr. Devine in full because we cut it down this time. So you'll be able to hear all they've got to say about vaccination strategies, hear more about what goes on in the communities and how to improve FMD control. It's well worthwhile listening to. Thank you all for listening. Stay safe. Mm-hmm.